Yo, you get parkour, rock climbing, and surfing. More. Okay, hiking, camping, and date nights. Even more. Picnics, road trips, and suntans. More, more, more. The new Mercedes-Benz GLB, designed for those who want more. More space with seven seats. More connectivity with MBUX. More room for life. A life of more possibilities awaits. Test drive the new Mercedes-Benz GLB today. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to MSP, Matsplained. MSP, Matsplained. Did we decide yet? We don't know. However, it looks like we're chewing the fat today. MSP's Matt Armitage returns with another bucket full of slick science stories that will allow us to hack our brains, lose weight, and improve our smoke detection skills. Though hopefully, not all at the same time. One of the great things about working with Matt on MSP is that I get to say things like, Honey is for bees to shake the disease. It takes hold of my tongue in situations like these. Um, So Depeche Mode fans will know what I'm misquoting, or rather I've had Richard misquote. Um, But yes, I'm always happy when it bees. Especially when they're so clever. Well, yeah, according to uh, a new report from researchers under a Dr. Andrew Marin at Sydney's uh, Macquarie University, honeybees can calculate probability, which definitely makes them smarter than me. That's not a small club. Uh, Sticks and stones, or clubs in this case. Um, Bees are a a favourite topic on uh, Science is Slick. Uh, They're one of those animals that we consistently underestimate and undervalue. Uh, In addition to all that work pollinating things for us, it turns out that they're really adept at figuring out what plants are likely, uh, or or are more likely rather, to offer them sweet treats. Isn't that just a case of adaptation over time, though, that the orange plant yields more nectar, so we go to places where there are more orange plants? Of course, there's there's a part of that, and we've seen rats pass uh, knowledge on genetically, such as how to navigate through a maze. But this is different because it shows the bees making dynamic choices when confronted with changing circumstances. So the uh, Sydney team re- uh, trained 20 honeybees to associate five different colours of artificial flowers with a different likelihood of the plant containing a sweet water mixture. The flowers were shown to the bees in different pair combinations uh, along a ranking based on the colour of the plant. And in every pair of plants presented to the bees, only the higher ranked colour contained the nectar substitute. And this was repeated so that identifiable probabilities developed over time. And doesn't that prove my assertion? Well, you'd think so, but... um, Because the uh, researchers then tested them with colour combinations they hadn't seen yet, they started to see different behaviour. So, for example, uh, combining the second and fourth ranking colours, which had odds of 66% and 33% chances of yielding nectar, which they hadn't seen before. As as they did that, the researchers watched the bees adjusting those behaviour patterns. So rather than visit the flower with the highest odds all of the time, they visited them proportionately. So the plant with a 66% chance of yielding nectar was visited about 66% of the time. Is that a strategy that works better in nature? 
Well, according to uh, Zach Ellaby at the University of Nottingham, um, this is from a story by uh, Krista Leste uh, Lazara at the New Scientist, by the way. So according to Zach Ellaby at, uh, at Nottingham, it may actually be an optimal strategy for them. A lot of bees are likely to be competing for the same resources. So the flower that yields nectar 100% of the time is likely to be the one that most insects visit. Therefore, a strategy that includes a, a, a spread is likely to yield more nectar overall, even if individual plants have a lower probability of yielding nectar on any one visit. You're back to the imperfect and uncertain information we were talking about on the recent Artificial Intelligence show. Yeah, exactly. So we were talking about human beings in relation to machines and our ability to think uh, top up and top down to compensate for information gaps. And probability, calculating the likely outcomes of our actions, has played a crucial role in our ability to survive as a species. So um, you're saying that honeybees are smarter than AI? Uh, no, I made you say that, but uh, you may be right. So uh, AI might be better at calculating the odds overall, but I'd like to see a machine do that while dive bombing a small child who's holding an ice cream. <laughs> Matt, uh, could you tell us something positive about AI for once? Well, yeah, I've got a cool uh, AI and big data story. So uh, I know the wildfires that have been raging across California this year are no one's idea of good news. Uh, and they've blanketed parts of the state, uh, the San Francisco area particularly, in the kind of haze that we often experience here in Southeast Asia. In fact, the California wildfire smoke is even starting to accumulate in the skies above the Atlantic on the other side of the North American continent. So this is one of those stories that could have really interesting implications for us in Asia as well. A new forecasting model being trialled by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is using big data to predict where the smoke from those blazes will end up about 48 hours in advance. Her smoke? Well, it's being called her smoke, uh, although the acronym is actually HRRR smoke, but you know, we're so infantile these days that we don't use anything that's difficult to pronounce, hence her smoke. Uh, the model is publicly accessible, so you can go and check it out. Uh, it's got one of those really unfriendly URLs. So just search for HRRR smoke. Uh, her smoke actually begins by building a picture from infrared satellite data that detects uh, the wildfires as heat anomalies. Uh, can't the satellites just follow it, though? The smoke, I mean, yes, they can, but that only gives you a real-time prediction. Um, and that really just mirrors what your eyes, nose and lungs are already telling you when it comes to, you know, smoke. Obviously, the prediction is a lot more complex. The model then overlays all kinds of weather models on that information about where the fires are located. It adds information about wind, humidity, temperature changes, rainfall. You know, there are hundreds of weather factors that can determine where smoke pollution will end up. So this model really is a breakthrough. And what's great about it is that you can select from lots of different visualizations. So it's color coded for where there are only sort of high atmospheric traces. And it shows you as well where it's likely to be hanging low to the ground, which you're more likely to inhale. Now, I feel like this is something uh, someone should have come up with earlier. I, I know. I mean, until I've read the story, I assumed we already had models like this. Um, 
One of the, the weirder things about it, I guess, is that it's also useful because it allows scientists to sample the smoke. Now, that's something that we don't often think about. But if scientists know where the smoke is heading, they can then intercept it. Because what they want to do is find out what gases are contained within those smoke plumes. Because those gases then react to local air conditions, environmental factors and pollution levels. So it can help out to figure in advance what you're likely to be breathing on any given day during the wildfire season. And it also gives the chemists more information on uh, exactly how and what creates those changes and reactions between different particles in our atmosphere and in the uh, and in the smoke plumes. Do you see it coming down to like a, a granular level, like a street view for smoke? I mean, that would be really cool, but uh, it seems to be unlikely at this stage. Um, you know, we, we talk about microclimates for a reason, you know, they're, they're, they're very real. So there are too many variables to give us that kind of neighbourhood by neighbourhood style outlook at the moment. But from that macro perspective, it could potentially offer countries like Malaysia much more flexibility when it comes to informing the public and uh, reacting to fire plumes from uh, across the region. How about we round off part one with another way to stay alive? Uh, yeah, you know, I've got that song going through my head right now. Um, maybe it'll play during the break. Who knows? Um, if you're listening to the podcast, go on, give yourself a, a, a couple of minutes of the Bee Gees. Um, Richard, I've got a question for you. When was the last time you considered traveling through a wormhole? Well, I mean, the last time I, I thought about it, I, I realized that I would be stretched to infinity and, and uh, would never survive it. So um, I think I gave up on that idea. Exactly, which is what most of us do. And that's why this is the, the, the kind of story that we like on MSP. Uh, we cover time travel and wormhole developments pretty much religiously. Um, and as you said, you know, uh, we've mentioned in the past that wormholes might theoretically allow you to time travel, um, but only in one direction. And of course, they come with the caveat that the gravitational forces would probably stretch you and uh, tear your atoms apart. Um, best case scenario is that the time traveling you would pretty much be soup when you arrived on the other side. Uh, so, Physicists Juan Maldathena at the uh, Institute for Advanced Study in New Jersey and Alexei Milakin at Princeton University have figured out how it might be possible uh, to travel through a wormhole without disrupting the theory of general relativity. Which says what? Well, that most wormholes would close when something falls in or they'd be so small that they effectively disappear when they're created, uh, a bit like the black holes that scientists were trying to uh, create at CERN a few years ago. They wink out of existence pretty much as soon as they're born. Uh, you don't need to trust me about this. This is uh, Albert Einstein's work, not mine. Um, so Maldathena and uh, Milekin uh, figured out that an additional dimension of space would allow for there to be large numbers of quantum fields and that fluctuations in those quantum fields could provide sufficient amounts of negative energy to actually structurally hold a wormhole open. Does this additional dimension exist? Well, I'm famously pan-dimensional and, you know, I haven't seen it, but um, that doesn't mean it isn't there, you know, just like my better nature. Uh, there's apparently no physical reason why there can't be. Uh, would they occur naturally? Well, New Scientist quotes uh, Aaron Wall at the University of Cambridge. Um, he reckons no, but uh, that if the theory is correct, 
the wormholes could be deliberately created, but presumably only with an enormous amount of energy. Um, but if it is true, we'll finally be a step closer to living our science fiction dreams. And, you know, for ordinary people, it will give them a glimpse into the kind of quantum lifestyle that I regularly enjoy. Outstanding hubris from Matt, who insists on journeying by a wormhole into part two. Staying alive on MSP here on BFM 89.9. Banish feudal mentality. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. I'm Rich Bradbury, and so far on today's MSP, we've had satellite smoke detection, passport-free intergalactic travel, and some maths problems solved by bees. That might be the first quantum travel event on radio. Uh, Matt, it would have been faster had you stayed in your seat and waited for me to do this intro. Yeah, but, you know, travelling through space-time makes me feel all tingly. Um... You know, it's like spending a day at the spa, except that your eyeballs hurt a lot. Uh, Which in uh, no way brings us to our next story, which is about Mr. Elon Musk and his Neuralink. Ah, so this is about the product demonstration he did a few weeks ago, a a live demonstration of his implant in animal brains. Yeah, that one. So, you know, it's interesting. There seems to be this sense of diminishing returns with Elon Musk at the moment. Uh, He hypes something and then it takes a long time for uh, the reality to fall into place, if it happens at all. And that's not to take away from the things that he's done uh, really well. We had this amazing moment with SpaceX's manned flights a few months ago. Uh, Tesla's saloon models and its SUV are really great cars. Let me guess. Uh, You're wondering what the purpose of some of the projects are. Well, yeah, you know, take the Tesla Cybertruck as an example. You know, we were promised this really revolutionary design. And what we got was this thing that looked a bit like a lazy Hot Wheels toy blown up to people scale. And that's not to say the truck isn't revolutionary. You know, it's performance specs, it's drag coefficient. They're mind bending for a truck, but it looked like an aluminium doorstop. Yeah, not to mention that uh, bulletproof uh, glass that broke um, embarrassingly. Well, I mean, I didn't mind that part so much. I mean, that was more of a kind of humanising part of the demo. And Musk, you know, to his credit, he doesn't flip his wig when those problems occur. But I do wonder why he overpromises, because sometimes you can feel that kind of disappointment from the crowd, you know, while he's actually doing the talks. And the Neuralink episode had a kind of similar feel. He dangled this prospect of seeing something remarkable, you know, seeing the Neuralink at work in a living brain. And I'll admit, in the end, I didn't watch the whole thing. Even the edited highlights left me a little bit nonplussed. Uh, You had two or three pigs that had the implants. Uh, With one of them, we saw brainwaves and tones being generated as the animal nosed around a pen in front of a a masked and socially distanced audience. Uh, With another pig, we saw it on a treadmill. The implant was able to predict the movement of the animal's limbs. Yeah, and what does that prove? Well, exactly. I'm not sure. And that's the part that confuses me. So, you know, admittedly, Neuralink filled a quiet news day. But 
as you said, you know, to what end? Uh, Musk said something along the lines of, uh, it'll be like having a Fitbit in your brain. But who actually wants a Fitbit in their brain, apart from maybe a small group of high-performance athletes? You know, we didn't hear much about the uh, how the company plans to progress to human trials or to get to the important stuff they've mentioned in the past. You know, how it will help to treat people with depression or dementia or paralysis, uh, to help people who have uh, sight disorders or problems hearing. And, you know, we want to know the more exciting stuff. Are we going to get Alexa in our brains? Will it eventually act like a brain implanted smartphone? Yeah, so there's a feeling of not much going on. Well, you know, I know that some of these questions are unfair. You know, you're talking about a work in progress technology. There isn't a fixed endpoint. And it's also reliant on a lot of other science and technology advances and breakthroughs. But scientists have been implanting neural networks in animals and humans for decades already. So that part is nothing new. Uh, One of the things we saw was an animal that had had its neural link removed and it appeared to be happy and normal. That's cool because, you know, it demonstrates to us that the process is reversible. Uh, Brain implants come with this fear of obsolete tech rusting inside your head. Um, But, you know, I'm still trying to figure out why now was the time to create so much theatre around it. There's undoubtedly been enormous progress, but vaccine developers don't hold a press conference to show us their workings out halfway through development. So I'm not sure whether this helps to stoke excitement or actually to extinguish it. Did you learn anything useful? Well, I'm really excited about the potential of brain computing interfaces in general, um, both for therapeutic and enhancement potential. Uh, But some of the things we learned about the Neuralink left me actually a little bit worried. Uh, You know, I guess we all have this image of a a low-powered chip that can actually power itself uh, from the energy, the electricity created by the brain. But the Neuralink will probably need charging at night via some kind of induction pad. So your pillow ends up being like one of those wireless charging pads that you uh, put your phone on? Well, potentially, I don't really know. And that's why it's a little bit vexing. Um, You know, there are already enough people concerned about harmless electromagnetic waves without the prospect of having to charge your head up at night. And what happens if the chip powers down or you didn't manage to get a full charge while you were in bed? You know, it's no massive loss if it's just a Fitbit for your brain. But it's a bit more important if it's a device that you can't walk or see without. And let's not forget, you know, as much as we're told that this is just a minor medical procedure, um, implanting the Neuralink is still brain surgery. There will be risks. So that's why I think that these kind of theatrics actually undermine the potential of the device and could potentially harm its chances of being publicly accepted. Uh You're sticking with the human body this half, aren't you? Yeah. You know, I've come in for a little bit of stick over the past few weeks for my love of uh, potato chips. I I can't imagine who's been making those digs. Um, But uh, perhaps my struggles with them will soon be at an end. So a Dr. Yu Hua Zeng and a team at Harvard University have pioneered a way to create more 
energy-burning brown fat cells in the body using CRISPR gene editing techniques uh, in mice. So most of us have very small reserves of brown fat. I probably have none. Um, and they do have a tendency to disappear as we age or gain weight. So exposure to low temperatures has been shown in some studies to stimulate those uh, brown fat cells and kickstart weight loss. But we haven't found any ways to actually increase the stores of brown fat that we possess. How do you turn white fat brown? Well, I usually leave it in the sun for a bit, although, you know, I tend to go more lobster pink than brown. <laughs> uh, the Harvard team isolated a gene for the protein uh, UCP1, which is uh, found in brown fat. So according to uh, Zeng, this is again reported in New Scientist, uh, the gene turns chemical energy into heat, helping us to burn the white fat. Uh, and they've given us another one of those easy to uh, say acronyms. They've called them uh, humble cells, which is short for human brown-like cells. Of course. Um, how effective have the tests been? Well, mice were divided into three groups. Uh, one group was uh, given white fat cells, another was given brown fat cells, and a third were given the humble cells. They were then fed uh, a high fat diet for 12 weeks. Uh, probably they just lived with me. Uh, the mice with the uh, brown fat and humble cells gained much less weight than those with the white fat cells. Um, but they also demonstrated more sensitivity to insulin, which uh, suggests that the cells may also be useful to combat diabetes. So do you think we'll be seeing uh, humble crisps anytime soon? Oh, that's the dream, isn't it? Crisps that make you thinner. Uh, there's still a, a lot more research to be done before we get to human trials. You know, we don't know what any potential side effects might be. So we would probably see it being used in kind of chronic conditions initially. Uh, people with metabolic issues, for example, who, who cannot lose weight just through diet control and exercise. But we keep hearing about the obesity and diabetes epidemics that the world is facing. So this may be one more tool to help us fight back. Um, it seems that we're staying in the same area for our final story. Uh, you mean the gut? Yes, um, I, I guess so. Uh, lactose intolerance is not going to be a, a stranger to people here in Malaysia. If you're not intolerant yourself, you probably know plenty of people who are. Now, we've talked about potential workarounds for this before, but they've mostly focused on preventing kids from developing the intolerance in the first place. Uh, scientists at MIT have developed a special glue that sticks to the small intestine, uh, the inside of it, obviously, and can be coated with enzymes that can help to regulate the way the gut uh, absorbs certain nutrients. Is it specifically for lactose intolerance? Uh, no. So the team has worked with uh, embedding lactase for people who are lactose intolerant, uh, but they can also coat it with materials to reduce glucose absorption, which could, uh, again, help the fight against obesity and diabetes. Um a lot of people are going to be put off by the idea of having glue in their gut. Well, it's actually straightforward. Uh, you swallow a drink containing a cocktail of chemicals. You're not drinking an actual glue. And these are activated when they interact with a specific enzyme in your small intestine. Then it forms a, a glue-like substance that's actually similar to the bonding agent that uh, muscles produce to stick to rocks. Uh, uh -huh. And... Before, yeah, before you say it, no, you're not coating your gut with glue for all eternity. Uh, the body seems to break it down in about 24 hours. So anyone using this treatment would have to top it up pretty much daily. Uh, so far, it's been trialed successfully in animals, but it's not ready to trial on people yet. 
uh, we have to finish up uh, Science is Slick with this question. What have we learned? Well, we've learned that wormholes are really the only way to travel, uh, that brown fat and glue might improve our health. Um, I hope it's pretty clear that this is not the right time to be looking at neural implants. And we now know that uh, AI can help us to model the effects of wildfires. But I think most importantly, we've learned that bees are better than us at pretty much everything. With that said, you have been listening to MSP here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.